be seated. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, music team. And thank you, Michael, for sharing your, your testimony of God's grace. And just overwhelmed um, when you think about God's goodness, aren't we? And uh, just thankful for the Lord's goodness and kindness to this church. And just constantly reminded of the gifts that He's bestowed on us. Um, uh, particularly people, and how the Lord is allowing our church, as, as if you've been here over the, the years, just seeing the Lord bring different people who are gifted in different ways to feed us. And uh, I pray that the Lord would use me to do that for us now as we come to the book of Romans. And last Sunday, or I guess two Sundays ago, we concluded uh, Romans chapter 8. And I would say in, in that chapter, we were hitting a climax in great splendor and glory. The symphony of the, the gospel is coming to its crescendo, where Paul reminds us that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. We'd seen through Romans, and particularly Romans 8, numerous truths that bolster that claim. Why is it that we cannot be separated from God's love? Well, Paul told us, he says, we've, we've been chosen by God. We've been uh, adopted as his children. We're bound for God's glorious presence in the new heavens and the new earth. We're indwelt with his Holy Spirit who has sealed us. We've been enabled to keep God's law, to walk in holiness. And we are heirs of all God's promises. So when we come to Romans chapter 9 now, it's kind of odd, I think, when we hear Paul say this, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. How can we go from such great glory and joy to I am sorrowful, I'm grieving? How can Paul move so quickly from the heights of joy to the depths of agony? Seemingly one verse. The reason is, is because Paul turns his attention to the nation of Israel. These are his fellow Jews, his kinsmen according to the flesh, he will say. This is his flesh and blood. These are his countrymen. This is his nation. And by and large, Israel has rejected Jesus, their Messiah. And so chapters 9 through 11, which we're entering a new unit, raise an important issue as it concerns the promises of God. And that issue is the unbelief of Israel. Now, if you are a new Christian, or you are unfamiliar maybe with all of Scripture and the whole storyline, that's okay. You may wonder, well, what's the big deal about Israel? And you still may wonder that if you've been a Christian for a while. Why, why, are, why is he so upset about this nation? Why, why focus on Israel's rejection? Don't most nations reject the gospel? I mean, if we just consider our own nation, most people don't believe. And so why all this fuss over Israel? Well, the reason being is because all the promises, all these great promises that we came to a crescendo in, actually were made to Israel. 
can see this in, in verses 4 through 5. He, he goes through a list. We'll read it in a moment. But if you were to look at, at, at what Paul says here, particularly in verses 4 through 5, you would find that that's just Romans 8 through 1 through 8 and all the good stuff. Have we not been chosen? That's what it means to be an Israelite. You, that, to bear that title, you were chosen of God amongst all the nations. We've already seen that we're adopted. Well, what was given to Israel? The adoption. We're bound for glory. They were promised the glory. We're, we're true worshipers who worship in spirit of truth. Well, they were given the instruction of the worship. They were given the law, but we've, we've been able to keep the law. And if you were to just go through that list, you would find, oh yeah, that's been given to us and made possible through Jesus Christ. And these were all the things that Israel was promised with. But here's the problem. Israel has failed to obtain the promises. And if Israel has failed to obtain these promises, which were promised to her, and we, we read it even as Moses interceded on behalf of Israel after coming out of Egypt, these are yours forever. It doesn't look like it's theirs forever. And if it's not theirs forever, how can we be confident that it's going to be ours forever? That's why this is a big deal. The problem of Israel's rejection of the gospel is raising questions about God's faithfulness to his promises. Can he be good on it? Or is he just one who speaks things but doesn't carry them out? And this would have been the objection that Paul would have received when preaching in the Jewish synagogues. And we might catch a glimpse of what this exchange might have looked like. If you, if you just turn to uh, Romans chapter 3, we've been here, but it was some time ago. Romans chapter 3, verse 1, Paul answers a series of questions after he's just said all are under sin. There's no distinction. And so the question might have come as he's preaching in a setting much like this in a synagogue. All right, Paul, what advantage is the Jew? Why would they say that? Because we're the chosen people of God. We have an advantage. Or what is the value of circumcision, Paul? What's the point of it if it doesn't matter anymore? You get the tone? What does Paul say? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Okay? So what if some were unfaithful, Paul? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Meaning, so what if some of us didn't keep the law? God says he will be faithful forever. And Paul responds, by no means. By no means. This does not mean that God is faithless. And really, as we're going to look and we've learned through the book of Romans, well, it's not just some who were faithless, it was all. All are faithless, and it's not just Israel, it's every person. But if we think about Israel, we think about the Jews, and you, you think maybe if you studied the book of Acts, or if you were with us when we went through the book of Acts, isn't this exactly what played out every time he'd go preach the gospel? I mean, it wasn't just true for Paul, it was true for Peter, James, Stephen. They were preaching a gospel. And for them, gospel would have ringed to different ears uh, than us initially. It would not so much contradict, it would just mean more. Because gospel was a term that came from the book of Isaiah. And in Isaiah, 
Isaiah promised that there was going to be a new exodus, a greater exodus than the one that you experienced in Egypt. And there's going to be those who are carrying good news over the mountaintops that your Redeemer has come. You may think of even the openings of the gospel where John the Baptist was coming to prepare the way of the Lord and he was preaching good news. That's, that's the context. He's the prophet who was coming to prepare the way of the Lord. And, and so they're anticipating good news. This is Israel's gospel. This is Israel's Messiah, as Paul will say. And as this gospel would be preached, what would occur? Well, the consistent response was unbelief. Furthermore, it wasn't just unbelief. Let's, let's run this guy out of town. And, we, and then it got to the point, we don't want you just going to the next town. We want to stone you and make sure you're dead. What's going on here? And to make matters worse, the people who are drawn to this message are unclean, filthy, pagan Gentiles. And you're telling them that they can be the true people of God without obeying the law. I mean, that's what they're hearing. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to wash their hands the way we do. And they don't have to obey all the ceremonies and make all the sacrifices. And you are, or you are promoting unrighteousness, Paul. That's how they viewed it. So they wouldn't believe the good news. And so follow with me here. This good news that was for Israel wasn't good news to Israel. It wasn't good news to them at all. And yet it was for the other nations. And so if you were a Jew at this time and you were, you were critiquing Paul who's saying, I'm here on behalf of the hope of Israel, well, it doesn't look like that was such a great hope. In fact, that's exactly what he says when he's on trial. Before he goes to Rome, they said, what are, you, what are you doing here? And he's got Pharisees and Sadducees there to convict him. And, and, and they're saying he's teaching things contrary to our law. And, and he tells the ruling officials, I'm just here on the hope of Israel, the hope of the resurrection of the dead, the things that these brothers are, are longing for as well. But what was the, the hitch? What was the thing that, that was the problem? What was the stumbling stone? It was Jesus. They, they could not bear a crucified Messiah. They couldn't bear the fact when Peter preached, and you crucified him. And you did exactly what God had planned to happen. And so it sounds like God's plans failed. It sounds like the word of God has failed, that it's gone forth. And, and if this is really the truth, well, well, God's not really come through. That's, that's kind of the problem that is being brought to the forefront. But Paul is going to emphatically reject that conclusion. And we're going to be in Romans 9 through 11 for some time. I'm going to kind of slow down the pace just a little bit because we're, we're, we're going to enter some thick territory and, uh, and, and just trying to be sensitive to us. Um, there, there's just going to probably be new concepts, new things that it's hard to piece them all together. And so we're just going to take them a piece at a time. 
But Romans 9 through 11 is one unit. Like we saw, Romans 5 through 8 was a unit, and Romans 1 through 4 was a unit. Well, we're kind of in a new series, and you could just call it the problem of, of Israel's unbelief. You could name it that way. We don't think that's really relevant, so we don't name series like that, but it does matter to us because if we don't have an answer to that, well, what sure assurance do we have that we are going to be kept? Look at verse 6 of chapter 9. Or, yeah. It's not as though the word of God has failed. That's, that's the point of Romans 9 through 11. If you wanted to know when we get all through the weeds, what is the point? The word of God has not failed. Despite what you think you know, God's accomplishing exactly what he set out to accomplish. That's what Paul's getting after. Again, look in 11.1. I ask then, has God rejected his people? That's Israel. What does he say? By no means, 11.1. So you can see kind of the argument that's going to be running through this thread of Romans. God has not rejected his people. In fact, just the opposite has happened. God's word is doing exactly what he intends for it to accomplish. And what is God accomplishing through the gospel? The salvation of both Jew and Gentile. Remember at the beginning of Romans when we started this book? Maybe you don't, let me remind you. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel. You're beginning to see why there might have been a temptation for shame. Because the implications that were involved here. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel for why? Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That was a radical statement. To the Jew first, and also to the Greek. And in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it is written in Israel's scripture, the just shall live by faith. And that statement's still controversial to some today. Can't be. I must produce my own works, my own righteousness. Otherwise, my accomplishments don't amount to anything. That was the problem Israel had. In fact, it actually, though, was a bigger problem because it was an inflated view of themselves. All the way back from the golden calf. They had never kept it. But they lived under the facade and illusion through the ritual that they were righteous because they did these things. But back to that statement. It is the power of God to salvation. The preaching of this gospel we're going to see. Paul is, the gospel's on trial, if you want to put it that way, in 9 through 11. Is it really the power of God because the whole nation by which this whole plan's been working through doesn't believe it? How can this be true, is, in other words, if Israel doesn't believe? And so what we're going to endeavor upon is, is a mystery. In fact, that's exactly what Paul calls it. He's going to explain for us a mystery of the gospel. And the mystery is a, a hidden component, the hidden plan of God's redemption in Christ. In other words, he, he's going to say, hey, hey, church, church in Rome, I wanna, I'm going to pull back the veil just a little bit so I can bring you in on 
some things on heaven's side. That's what he's doing. Let's jump to 11, chapter 11, verse 25. This is kind of where things come to a conclusion. In fact, your Bible may have a bold letters, the mystery of Israel's salvation. Verse 25, lest you be wise in your own sight. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. What's the mystery? A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. There's a lot in that verse. In fact, I... I think that verse summarizes 9 through 11. It's just at the end, I've been telling you a mystery. I've been giving you the divine side of things. I'm giving you things that you, you think you're wise in your own eyes, but you don't understand the other component that's working here. And yet it looks like because Israel's not believing that God's plan's not working, but actually it is. And I'm going to give you another perspective. Like I said, there's a lot in that verse, but it centers on a particular doctrine. And that is the doctrine of election. Come back to nine. We're, we're, I've got a long introduction today. Get us prepped for this new section of Romans. Look in nine six. It's not as though the word of God has failed. What's his reasoning? Four, you could put because. Because not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. What are you, what are you saying, Paul? Just because you're ethnically Israel doesn't mean you're true Israel. That's next week. <laughs> Verse 11. What's he doing? Though they were not yet born, had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might Stand, might continue. Chapter 11, verse 7. What then? To everything Paul's going to be arguing. Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking? The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. This doctrine is going to explain why some people do not believe. And in this case, Paul's telling us why most of Israel doesn't believe. And it's the simple fact because God has hardened Israel. There's no way around that. Partial hardening has come upon Israel. We're going to look at it and we're going to explore this for several months. How is that working? And that's probably going to raise lots of questions. And this text is going to answer a lot of them, but guess what, brothers and sisters? It's not going to answer all of them. I've got questions that aren't going to be answered. But it's really not Paul's purpose is to answer all our questions. What he wants us to see here is that God is God and we are not. That just like Job, who had lots of questions, and he says, so tell me, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? 
kind of like one of those, let me just drop my resume on the table here and, and we'll talk about credentials. Paul's actually going to do that thing. Does, does the potter have no right over the clay to mold it however he wishes? Can the, can the, the pot respond back to the, the potter? Why did you make, this, make me this way? Yet, what we're going to see is when God's plan of redemption is carried out, that's what he wants us to see. God's got a plan. And he even involves the unbelief of Israel. It's going to be shown that he's kept his promises. It's going to be even shown that he's kept his promises to Israel, that he hasn't forsaken them. And so for that reason, we can be confident that he'll keep his promises to us. So as we explore 9 through 11, we're in entering differ, difficult terrain. I had some of you, you know, making sure, are we, are we starting 9 this week, you know, or are we going in there? You know, some of you know what's coming, and, and, and some of you are dreading it, you know. I, you know I'll, I'll let you know, I, I've, I've been asking lots of prayer, because I want to be faithful to the Word, and I know there are difficult things here, at least for us, but where I hope is actually come out of it and say these are beautiful things. Subject matter is going to be trying because here's what Paul's going to emphasize, God's absolute freedom to do exactly what he pleases. That's not how we think, right? No, I, I must be absolutely free and therefore God must be subservient to me. It's going to be the opposite. He's explicitly going to tackle that notion. These chapters will make it abundantly clear that God, as I said, is the potter and we are the clay. So in light of these challenges, here's some application in the introduction already. Here are a couple of things I'm going to ask of us. This is really genuinely true, but maybe this is a, an opportune time to, to press these things. I, I sent out an article that went to all the members. It was up on the website, Facebook, how to listen to a sermon well. Because I was anticipating we better listen well. And I'm not convinced we all do. Um, and so here's some practical things that I'm going to ask of you. You can take them or leave them. But I'd prefer you take them. <laughs> Bring a hard copy of the Bible instead of your, your electronic version. And hey, don't get me wrong. I like my electronic, but I got a hard copy too. Okay? You can do both but have a hard copy. Why is that? Because I know how it is. You, you, you got an email that comes up. You got Twitter that dinged. You got a news alert. You, you, oh, what's the weather? What's going on outside? And you will swipe over. I can multitask, and, 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 and these things can be a distraction to us. So I'd ask you to bring a Bible. And I want us to have our Bibles because I'm going to be going at a pace that we're, I want us looking and putting our finger on the page and seeing this and thinking about it. What, what is God saying in this verse? And let's flip over to the, the, the Old Testament citation that, that, that Paul is bringing up. What, what was going on there and how's he likening it to here? And I know when you've got an electronic version of the Bible, you can't keep them all before you that quickly. And so I ask you want to learn 
bring your hard copy of God's Word. If you don't own one, we will get you one. Now, you better like, not have the means to purchase one, but we, we, we will get you one if that is an issue. Number two, be a good Berean. Search the Scripture yourself to see if these things are so. Because I know there's going to be things I don't like either. And I've had to search the Scripture to see if these things are so. That doesn't mean that you, you, get, you get a pass. You need to search the Scriptures to see if these things are so. Number three, come each Sunday with a heart ready to be amazed by our great God. Come with questions. Read over the week. Read all through Romans 9 through 11. Pepper your community group leader with all sorts of questions. Amen, Gary? Come with questions. Even if you're like, I just can't get that. I don't, I can't, I don't think that's right. Okay, just, just keep on the journey. And at the end, you may disagree on some of the finer nuances here. Good Christians have disagreed. But come, wrestle, have discussion. Don't be divisive about it, but be, come with your questions. Particularly your community group. And here's where I want to kind of bring this home for this morning. Romans 9 through 11 isn't written for our mere speculation, doctrinal articulation, pontificating, dividing a line between those who, who love these things and those who don't, or those who really get it, and those who, none, none of that. No, this was written being couched in a very real scenario of why people don't believe the gospel. So here's the question I have for us. Where are we going to go and find rest for our souls when we grieve over those who've rejected Jesus? I know all of us have those people in our lives. We grieve. Maybe it's a child. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a close friend you grew up with. Someone who was in church, seemingly walking with the Lord, and, and now they've abandoned the things of God. Where do you find rest for your grieving soul? And when we seriously think about these things, we, we think about the implications of those who reject Christ, doubts begin to creep in, don't they? Doubts about God begin to creep in. And we may be Doubting, well, is God able to save? And that's really behind that question. Verse 6, has the word of God failed? Is, is the gospel really not the power of God to salvation? Have you ever thought that? You've shared the gospel with someone, you, you want them to come to faith, and they, they continue to reject it, and it's like, maybe the gospel doesn't have the power it claims. Or we're, we're trying to do things here at Oak Park, and we're trying to, 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 to magnify the gospel. Well, why aren't there more people? it really not work? Should we start adopting some other method? Begin to doubt. Or maybe you don't doubt the power of the gospel, but you begin to doubt God's character and goodness. You just won't save them. You're able, but you just won't do it. And you call his character into question. And that's exactly what 
Paul will bring up in verse 14 of chapter 9. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is he, is he actually the one who's unjust in what he's doing? By no means. He's not. And so as we wrestle, this is the same area actually with suffering, right? This is a type of suffering when we grieve the lost. But there are two kind of rails that we must keep in mind, and Paul puts these up for us right at the very beginning, and that is rail number one, that God is, is able. God is all-powerful, all-sovereign. He is able. But at the same side, he is good, and he is righteous. There is no darkness in him at all. And even when we look at it and we're like, yeah, but I don't see how that fits in between these two rails. That's what's going on here. I don't see how this problem of Israel, Paul, fits into these two rails of that you're able and you're good. Seems like one of these has to give in light of what you're saying. And so these serve kind of like the the, the stable barriers. I I, I sometimes... um, I haven't done this a long time, but scuba dive. And one of the dangers they they tell you is if you go too far deep, you you kind of can have uh, um, uh, something happen to you. You're basically equivalent of being intoxicated underwater because of the chemicals and the uh, and things that are happening inside of you and the, the the pressure tanks and stuff like that. But you know how you figure out which way's up and which way's down. No matter if you're convinced, down is up. Watch the bubbles. Watch the bubbles. They always go up. The bubbles for us are these two things. God is able and God is good. Okay? They are. Some have written that these chapters, if if what Paul says here is true, well, then God's a monster. Doubted that he's good. But that's not true. God is good and he's able. And these chapters, they're going to explore for us and take us on a journey of the awesome depths and the heights of God's sovereign grace, his wisdom and knowledge and the purposes and salvation. These chapters are intended to lift our eyes up in awestruck wonder of the glory of God. And by the time we work through these chapters, our response, I pray, will be, what Paul says in 1133-36, Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and how inscrutable His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor or who has given a gift to Him that He might be repaid? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. So in light of that extended introduction, we get to our text this morning. No worries, it's, it's condensed. Let's read verses nine through, or chapter 9, verses 1 through 5. Paul says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites 
And to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. These verses express Paul's deep grief and agony over Israel, who's lost. And as we look at this passage, it's my prayer that our view of God and and salvation would produce in us a genuine grief over the lost. A grief that would drive us to prayer. And a grief that would motivate us to share the gospel with the lost. We see here in in these first verses that that Paul is agonizing. and, and, And so for us, if we understand what's going on in this text, we're We'll agonize over the lost. And we're really reading here in chapter 9 the heart of a missionary. I mean, we, we tend to forget this. Paul's a missionary. This is just a little side note. People tell me missionaries don't need to go to seminary. No, missionaries need to go to seminary. Because you need to know what Paul knows. He's a missionary. He longs for people to come to know Christ. And the heart of this missionary is captured in the longing for the salvation of sinners. Paul's heart, we see it in particular here, is captured by his countrymen, the men and women of Israel. Why is he burdened for them? What's the big deal? He's burdened for them because they're lost. He's burdened over their spiritual condition. Well, he doesn't really say anything directly here at first about their spiritual condition, does he? He just goes into it. I'm, I'm broken over them. Well, we know what he's talking about, number one, because he's willing. He says, basically, I would trade places with them. This is mind-boggling to me. I would trade places with them. And, and what's the place that he's willing to be at now? Be accursed. That's that word anathema. Let them be damned, is what he says in Galatians, if anyone preaches another gospel. Let them be cursed. Let them be thrown to hell. He's saying, I could wish I would be accursed. Cut off from Christ. That is, cut off from the promises. Cut off from forgiveness. Cut off from from the people of God. Move from standing on grace and peace with God to being his enemy and under his wrath. That's what he's talking about. And so like Moses, who's, if you remember when Pastor Nathan read, who sought and said, if you will not forgive them, blot my name out of your book. So Paul says, I could wish the same. He would trade their hard heart for his heart of flesh. In fact, that's what that looks like in chapter 2, verse 5. He talks about being under wrath. It's having a hard and impenitent heart, which is storing up wrath on the day of wrath in which God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Give me their hard and penitent heart and give them my heart of flesh filled with the Spirit so that they may obtain the promises. That's what he's saying. How, how could Paul wish something like that? That's my big question of this text. Just starting right there. I, I'll just let you know, I couldn't move past this. I racked my brain 
I emotionally wrestled with this text. Because I'll be honest, I've never felt like that. Love my kids, I've never even thought that for them. Maybe I will. But I, I couldn't, I, I, it's mind-boggling me, Lord, if I could wish, not just for one person, whole nation, damn me and save them. That's what he's saying. And so my prayer this week has been, I wish I could wish this prayer. You understand what I'm saying there? I wish I could even be at this point. I can't even, I'm not even on this level. It's not even something that enters my mind in my prayers. I pray for the lost, but I don't pray like that. So far, I've sought to understand how could Paul, and here's the deal, many missionaries who've gone after him. I mean, I've heard missionaries pray like this. Those who are burning for the loss at that level. Lord, my prayer's been, help me get a glimpse, help me understand, bring me somewhere in this hemisphere. That's my prayer for us. So how do they... How have they cultivated this heart? And I, I was just thinking, and trying to think of Paul in particular, how did he get to this point? And, and I came with three things, and, and maybe these will be helpful for you. I think it's the way he got here is that he has an intense awareness of the reality of eternity. He's thinking heavenly things. He's not consumed with all the things we're consumed with. And he starts actually on the positive. I mean, he when he thinks about them, he goes through the list of basically heaven, promises of glory. And he's burdened because they're missing out. I mean, we sometimes don't think of it that way in our evangelism, do we? We don't, we don't offer the, the good news. We, we sometimes just think about the bad news. You want to be like me, forgiven. And sometimes lots of people are like, well, why does it matter if I'm forgiven? Well, this is why it matters. A new creation, all the things that we've looked at. And he, he, he says, these things belong to Israel, and I want them to have that. But he also realizes the realities of hell, and I think that's what he's getting at in verse 3, that I would be a curse, cut off from the Christ. So he has an intense awareness about eternal matters. that Seemingly matter more to him than his very own soul. Number two, he has a genuine love for others. I mean, this is the only way you could ever pray something like this. He has a genuine love for others. And the closest I can relate to that type of love is my own family. But he views this nation, these people, on that level. And the only way that I, how do, how do we cultivate something like that? Well, you've got to be around them. I mean, it's easy to not love the people you don't know, right? It's really easy. You just don't know them. It's ignorance is bliss. But if you're around people, and that doesn't solve it. There's other things. I mean, I'm a, we're around people that I, I'm still not there, but got to start somewhere, right? You love those people whom you know. And he knew the people who were trying to kill him. And then 
Thirdly, and this is more implication, is I'm just looking at what Paul sounds like, or who Paul sounds like. It sounds like Jesus. And I imagine there was just a deep desire to be like Jesus. That he knows his limitations. He understands, I could wish. He knows that can't happen. He knows there's no, like, there's not a trade you can do. Just like Moses learned as he was before God and interceding. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, that great passage on evangelism. He says, for the love of Christ controls us. I think that's what it looks like for him. I'm totally controlled by the love of Christ. What was the love of Christ that he laid out his life? And what was Christ? He was accursed. He was cut off. And Paul's basically saying, I'm, if I could... I would take the wrath for them. But he knows he can't. He's not Messiah. He's not God overall. But he has the heart if he could. And so, whatever you, we come through in these chapters in Romans 9 through 11, the doctrines of election, what's clear is that it does not squinch Paul's longing and anguish over the lost. It doesn't. In fact, it seems that it fuels it. Because he says, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. My conscience bears witness to me in the Holy Spirit. What does he mean there? I think he means by. The Holy Spirit's producing in me these things. I'm not lying to you. I'm not blowing smoke. He's swearing to God. And he's able to say it. I would die for these people. Not just die. I would be damned for them if I could. And so this... We've kind of already seen this, but I think it's worth spelling out. We'll also pray to God for the lost when we understand the truths of these texts. Paul's clearly praying. And we get kind of the positive side. If you if just look in chapter 10, look at what he says. This really gets the heart of his prayer. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them. Who's the them? It's Israel. My prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. There's some false teachers out there telling you that they're on TV, they take a lot of your money, but they'll try and tell you that Israel doesn't need the gospel because they're God's chosen people. You don't need to go evangelize them. That's, that's not what Paul thought. Pray for them. They may be saved. goes on he says for I bear witness I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God but not according to knowledge for being ignorant of the righteousness of God here's here's what it looks like they're ignorant of the righteousness of God seeking to establish their own you see it they think they can be right by establishing their own righteousness that's the problem and they did not submit to God's righteousness which is the gospel in it, the righteousness of God is revealed, verse 17 of chapter 1. They think they will have righteousness, but not that it comes through faith in Christ. And so I'm praying for them they'd be saved. This is true for every person. You know, I know a lot of people who are religious. Sometimes they're nicer than Christians. I'm frank with you. I, I, I've met some atheists that, man, you sure you're not a Christian? You know, because they're, they're nice, they're kind, they're not grumpy. 
And yet if they do not know Christ, they're going to hell. It's not about how nice you are. It's not about how good you are. It matters if you're not cut off from Christ. That's what he's getting at here. So that's his prayer. What drives him to prayer is because he believes God's able, right? Why else would he pray? If God's not got a plan and he's not sovereign, why would you go to him? Clearly, he, he's, he's saying God's got a plan. And, I, and even though I know this mystery, he's hardened the nation, I'm still praying for them. We're going to see, well, we'll get there in the next point. That prayer doesn't end there. He, he shares the gospel with them. And so I'd like, I'd like to see this in my life more. And my prayer is for us as a church that we would pray like this individually, but, but also that we pray collectively in our community groups like this. Here's a lost person I'm, I'm praying for by name. Or here's a people group I'm praying by name. I know it's one of Gary's hearts. We begin praying by name, specifically people. And you know what? Maybe by God's grace we'll, we'll be in agony over them like Paul was. And when we pray like this, we'll be motivated to take the gospel to the lost. We'll be motivated to do that. Paul shares the gospel with them. In fact, he, he understands that God is, is giving his grace to the Gentiles and he's hardened Israel. But look in 11.13. Actually, let's just go to 11.11. So I asked, did they stumble, that is, not believe the gospel, in order that they might fall, meaning forever? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. So I don't have time to go into that. There's a purpose in the fact that they have rejected Messiah, brought us salvation, and there's kind of a retroactive action that's going to do. Now, if their trespass means riches of the world... And if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their inclusion mean? Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, that's us. And as much as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, that means I go preach the gospel, that's my main mission field. I magnify my ministry in, some, in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus what? Save some. His doctrine, understanding the doctrine of election doesn't, Say, well, I shouldn't share the gospel, even though he knows God has hardened Israel. No, I'm going to continue preaching the gospel in order that I might save some. He sees it as his calling from God to do that, and it's not a go- working against God's purposes, it's, it's fulfilling them. And so we share the gospel. Let me read this and we'll close. We have that great text in Romans 10, right? 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. So verse 14, how then will they call on him whom they have not believed? And 
how are they to believe in him whom they've never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Brothers and sisters, the only way people will believe and have faith is if they hear the word of Christ. It's the only way. So you see, I've just tried to give us a, 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 a Passover, a bird's eye view of Romans 9 through 11. These strong doctrines of, of sovereignty and, and election don't discount grieving the lost. Praying for the lost, sharing the gospel for the lost. It doesn't. In fact, for Paul, it fueled his evangelism, and I pray that it would fuel ours when we come out on the other side. So in just a moment, we're going to sing. Band, you can come on up. It's my prayer that we would see one another as our brothers and sisters and co-laborers, and that we would be burdened we'd walk out of here at least aware of I'm not where I should be and I'm, I'm, I'm there with you but we may know Christ more and the joys of the gospel more that when we see those who don't have Christ we would be burdened for them let's pray Lord break our hearts over the lost cause us to come to you in prayer knowing that you are able to save and Lord, may that prayer drive us to share your gospel with those you've put around us. May our view of salvation, Lord, and sovereignty cultivate these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's, let's sing.